0: Let's take a spin through Alison Williams's character on Lena Dunham's HBO series *Girls*. <laughs> no, no, actually, no. I couldn't. I couldn't hold a straight face. But there is an opera for Marnie, and I'm not. I'm not talking about that one either. I'm talking about the Alfred Hitchcock 1964 film *Marnie*, starring Tippi Hedren and Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Yes, that Sean Connery. After being James Bond in two movies, while still being James Bond, to be fair. This is a later Hitchcock movie, and probably a lesser-known one, though I've heard folks talk about it, but but they're smart folks, and I'm I'm using this movie to disguise my ignorance. So by the numbers, Marnie was released July 22nd, 1964, clocking in at 2 hours and 10 minutes on an estimated $3 million budget. This movie took home a little over 7 mil and was not recorded as doing well internationally at all. I've seen several reports of the movie not being received well upon release, but it's currently sitting at 83% on the Meter, a 7.1 on IMDb, and a 73 on Metacritic. I'll spoil it now, and I will tell you that those feel a bit high, and perhaps... The initial reviews of Marnie were not so concerned with how famous Alfred Hitchcock was, but more on how the film was received. You know, I guess I'll get to it right off the bat. No reason to keep anyone waiting, honestly. I did not like it. I know that the screenplay went through several iterations and several authors, with the last author, J. Presson Allen, going along with Hitchcock to include the rape scene that, and I'm editorializing here, he had a bit of a hard on for i get that you know it's apparently a marital rape and for a long time people didn't think that that was a thing however the marriage was basically born of blackmail and if you if you don't know what the hell is going on you probably haven't watched the movie so i think i'll just summarize it at this point because yeah it's not going to make much sense otherwise titular marnie edgar played by tippy hedren We meet in media res. There has been a theft of some bonds or money or some such from a giant safe, and they suspect that it's the young woman who was hired as an accountant's assistant, as she hasn't shown up for work. We see her walking through a train station, and then we see her change her hair, like Jason Bourne, in in the bathroom, just dye it, and head off to Baltimore. While we also meet Mark Rutland, Rutland, played by Sean Connery. In the office of the victim of the robbery getting us the exposition because we also don't know what happened and uh, he's a client of that office so it's all explained to him this whole sequence by the way the the robbery and and all these things are, are kind of my favorite in the movie especially the stylized way that they film marnie walking through the train station with a i believe yellow purse anyway she eventually comes back and tries to grift Mark Rutland's company because she's just habitually this person, you know she she almost gets away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling connery. But but this isn't a call the cops on her situation or even maybe the I love a criminal situation. Although ostensibly that's what Rutledge says. Rut Ru- Rutland, not Rutledge. That's the guy from Top Gear, um, American Top Gear. Formerly of I I, I don't know. But anyway, it's more. Uh, Rutland has this sick fucking fascination to control her and I guess ostensibly to rescue her. But it's really weird because the whole setup is that his wife died and, uh, there's his, um, who I remember to be his dead brother's widow hanging around in his house where he still lives with his father, even though it's a huge, huge, huge house. And it's, it's all got a very weird vibe and there's this whole, uh, aristocracy or, you know, modern day aristocracy, Versus common folk mood. Add to that the fact that Marnie is a career and compulsive criminal, and it becomes muddled. Perhaps like this isn't this isn't Parasite, right? Parasite, well, Jun Ho, best picture winner kind of thing. This isn't exploring what class is and what we might do to protect our standing or any of these questions. It's super shallow in actuality. There is an antagonist of sorts, Lil played by Diane Baker, who is, uh, you know, some weird suck-up. She is the, you know, widow that's hanging around. And, yeah, I just, I guess they keep her around for fun, so to speak. But, you know, she's definitely trying to smash with with Connery and trying to get that money and, and you know, maybe the whole package. Maybe she's just into that, that brother as well. But she's sure as hell going to try to sabotage whatever the hell... You know, weird relationship it is between Marnie and Rutland. Anyway, so so Marnie creeps up on Rutland's business, and Mark catches her because he recognized her from jump, and um, he basically sets a trap to blackmail a woman into marrying him because he was fascinated, I guess. And I mean, although he is Sean Connery level good looking, and could have just you know, I don't know, looked around a bit for fascinating women to interact with. He blackmails her into getting married, and uh, that's that's not an exaggeration. That's kind of fucking exactly what happens. They go on a honeymoon, and he, he pretty much rapes her, and uh, I'm, I'm fuzzy on, on whether this is before or after. She says that she's revolted by his touch, but um, there's an inciting incident between them where she has a panic attack during a thunderstorm, and they kissed, and he thought it was all good. This is before she robs him or his company, he's like, what the hell? And she says, I figured I could push through. You know, there, there's no subtext to this scene. It is just all text. There's no twist. There's no grift. It is, this is, this is the movie. This is it. She has a horse. There's some stuff about horses. She loves horse. And there's some very mild suspense about her real identity. And then Lil just trying to stir shit up. And I don't think it's worth a watch in this day and age. Like, there is no twist. There is no, it just, it goes straight. It just drives on going forward, never deviating. It plays out exactly how you would think. Anyway, aside from plot details that don't capture me, the movie plays out like a stage adaptation. And I've I've seen a few stage plays and they have a distinct vibe, right? Relatively few locations and lots of people just talking to each other. This is not how movies are made in in modern times, and um, I'm genuinely surprised because Hitchcock seemed to have moved past that already. However, you know you can spot a stage play adaptation from a mile away or 1.6 kilometers. So, so like I was really big on Ray Winstone for a minute, and I decided to watch 44 Inch Chest because it was billed as a mobster movie, but it mostly consists of his friends coming over to convince him to kill his wife's lover. Who he has locked up in a closet, if memory serves. Like it's basically a one room affair. The Man from Earth, written by Jerome Bixby of Star Trek Fame, is the same deal. Pretty much one room. One night in Miami is a similar vibe. None of these movies are bad in my opinion. And actually, hey, listen, I actually recommend that you watch them if you think you might be into that. Did enjoy them, but they they definitely have this feel to them. They are constructed. From stage plays, right? But having been constructed from stage plays, I feel that they have already established a scaffolding of character arcs, plot, and pacing to make something entertaining already with with just that. Marnie, however, feels similar, even though it was adapted from a book. So it's kind of fucked up and weird, and it's not great. It is missing the stage play scaffolding, but it has the stage play feel for a good portion of it, just about the middle, kind of the middle, the vague middle, beginning middle, other than, you know, a few scenes, a few sequences. The great Alfred Hitchcock, after triumphs like Psycho, North by Northwest, and The Birds, comes through with some kind of stage play-ass bullshit, depending on Connery and Hedren to just flap their bambas all through a movie, and Kind of to, to make it work without any arc or, or reveal or, or, or pacing. Like, Come on now. Come on now. Having, having a horse show up in a few scenes doesn't really excise the stage play feeling from it. You know, Tippi Hedren had already worked with Hitchcock to great success. If, you know, some controversy. She was the Golden Globe winning star of the 1963 Hitchcock film, The Birds, that I'll absolutely never watch, because I saw either the MGM or Universal Studios 3D show as a child, and and I was good. I was a-okay. I'm done. Birds kill everyone. Nice. Awesome. You know, maybe for the spiritual successor, it'll be the trees. Anyway, there was some controversy there as the, the model turned actress. A scene in The Birds was having a particularly difficult time in filming a certain scene, and uh, Hitchcock insisted on using live birds and uh, ultimately ended up injuring Hedren, not personally, but through, through his direction, his very specific direction, over a grueling several days of getting hit by seagulls. Yeah. Hitchcock had a definitely interesting, in a bad way, relationship with Hedren, in that he essentially plucked her from modeling and brought her fully up to speed onto the silver screen. You know, and if that doesn't say power dynamic issues, then I don't know what might. Tippy, at any rate, was completely inexperienced in acting, and th- through the process of making The Birds, you know, she really picked it up and she worked hard and was obviously lauded for her performance, although the the question does need to be asked. How much of that was acting and how much of that was a genuine result of the difficulties or issues of production. Marnie brought forth a much more nuanced role for Hedren, and the results were much better than I would have expected for a second-time actor, honestly. I had known the name of Tippi Hedren just through conversation, but it didn't occur to me at any point that she might be new to this shit, you know? She worked really hard. I just I don't like the screenplay. Sean Connery comes in here attempting to wash james bond off of himself but only makes me think he's more james bond he's one step ahead of everybody he's very suave he's he's sleek gorgeous in a gray suit and hey maybe a bit of a womanizer and a rapist so check check and check the only real difference between rutland and bond is that his parents aren't totally dead and when he assaults a woman he doesn't convert them to his cause that being said, all the good things about Connery being Bond hold true as well. He's quite the tremor and quite the looker. Rutland's sick fascination with control is, however, not endearing. And kind of the fact that that's all there is to it, it doesn't really satisfy. Diane Baker brings a thirsty widow to you know what would pass his life in the screenplay. She's definitely got a presence and a look to her, but with precious, precious little to do in the movie. But be annoying. think of her part as being the the Croix of Bond Femme Fatales. She's, you know, otherwise a fairly prolific Golden Globe and, I mean, nominated actress. The screenplay doesn't go too far for her character, um, but the vibe is similar for Louise Latham. And uh, Latham, in contrast with Diane Baker's studio contracts, uh, this was her first film credit. Her part was also relatively small as Marnie's mother, but she was in old makeup for the majority of it, and uh, she's actually almost the same age as Debbie Hedron. She was discovered, so to speak, by Jay Presson Allen, the screenwriter, as they had worked together previously in Texas. Jay Presson Allen, however, comes from a really unique place. She was a woman screenwriter at a time where there were few and came from a less than typical background. She had a dysfunctional first marriage and began writing to be able to work her way out of the marriage and into a divorce to have some financial independence. She later married again with a Lewis M. Allen, and they had a very long marriage indeed up until Lewis Allen's death in 2003. Allen did begin as a novelist who transitioned into television, then the stage, and ultimately film while also working and performing in radio and in other endeavors. You know, again, I do feel that the stage play aspect of the screenplay shows, especially in the beginning while we work up to Marnie robbing Rutland. You know, also, the the character's name is Rutland. I don't know if that's original to the novel, but that's like calling someone fuckland. A definition of rut as a verb is to, quote, uh, engage in promiscuous or indiscriminate Sexual activity. You know, I don't know what that means because Rutland, uh, as played by Sean Connery, should ostensibly have several potential partners, but uh, is, in the grand scheme of things, sexless in the film. Uh, I'm not counting the rape scene, by the way. Allen was quoted as saying in Stephen DeRosa's 2001 book, Writing with Hitchcock, the collaboration of Alfred Hitchcock and John Michael Hayes, quote, you just got bothered by the scene that was his reason for making the movie. You just wrote your ticket back to New York to Evan Hunter, who was the screenwriter who previously worked on Marnie and who potentially got fired over objecting about the rape scene, which was original to the book. Mind you, this is after acquiescing and writing the rape scene and, uh, you know, providing a, an alternate sequence, an alternate scene. I feel like. Working with Hitchcock is interesting in many, many ways. Not all of them good. Alan did go on to have a full career with several films to her name. She did end up preferring the industry of script rewrites, however. And I can only wonder if it came from a place of no longer wanting to go along to get along as a woman screenwriter. You know, I also wonder that about working with Hitchcock. But the only time the movie feels like a movie is during the hunt scene. When Marnie breaks away from the pack, that's kind of representative of Marnie tasting freedom and then her past kind of coming due to collect. And this time it costs her the thing that she loved the most. You know, So what will it be next time? I could blame it all on Hitchcock, and i blame a lot of it on him. But perhaps it's just me, 50 years later, sitting on a couch, streaming the movie over the air from a digital repository, And not having the context of the time. But I've seen North by Northwest and it's, you know, comparatively, fucking slaps. So maybe some of column A and some of column B. Column A being, it's not good. And column B being, I have no context for this movie or this type of movie. One might say, cinematographically, right, the movie is unimpressive or boring. But I disagree. The screenplay makes it so. But the cinematography during the heist scenes and certain scenes of intrigue, it really works for me. Robert Burks was DP on this, and while the movie was mostly soap opera-ish and lighting, because everybody was rich and healthy, there are, there are subtle things. There's one point where Mark Rutland is on the phone with his private investigator, and it's got this ever-so-subtle Dutch angle to it that I really did enjoy. It made it seem more than it was. Yes, yes, we were getting some juicy goss, but it was almost like I was waiting for somebody to get shot, you know? I liked it. He does it again in the scene with Mark and Marnie at the safe. We also get these high-angle close-ups of Marnie in the opening heist, and they're shot with a shallow depth of field. It's a really interesting point of view for the camera, and if, if memory serves, there's a few of those for Rutland's character as well. I can only assume it's like the the thinking shot, as it's actually centered on their foreheads, but it's something that could be considered style and flavor for an otherwise pretty fucking bland movie. The inserts that follow up in the heist stuff are also really good. You know, the heist stuff is actually all really good, but then it stops being a heist movie real quick. You know, I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if I went and watched Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven and found some influence there. You know, if not influence then perhaps confluence but, you know, to me I guess Ocean's Eleven is like the heist movie. Kuleshov all the way and it's it's possible that cinematography was limited a lot like the plot was by this conceit of Freudian analysis to really hinge and pivot and, and kind of bring everything around and uh, you know what's actually pretty fucking boring to watch if you're going to do it in real time? Freudian analysis. Can't do anything with that shit, except make everything look like a dick and blame the mother. Art Herman comes through with the score for sure, but that isn't going to save this movie in my eyes. It's funny that it's living up to a lot of what Mel Brooks's high anxiety aimed at, yet there isn't a medical professional in the entirety of the movie. I'm wondering why this could be. But I get the impression that it's Hitchcock, after all the success, becoming a shadow of his former self, or maybe just using some ideas that had been locked away without having the fortune of having anyone say no to him. I'm a big proponent of the idea that sometimes your best friends are the people that keep you from doing dumb things. And, you know, to reduce this movie to to being a dumb thing is undoubtedly overly harsh. But it does not stand with his best work. But maybe it's time to talk about how much of a fucking weirdo Hitchcock was. In the scope of Marnie, this starts with Hedren during The Birds. Funny. Uh, backwards. Okay. Anyway, Hitchcock basically hires goons to tail Tippy Hedren and basically interfere with her life. What to eat, what to wear, who to talk to, and I'm perhaps using some artistic license in calling them goons, but the book of this is in Donald Spoto's book, The Dark Side of Genius, as a first-hand account from Tippy Hedren herself. Hitchcock is telling other actors not to touch, quote, that girl, after he yells cut. She stated that he attempted to grab her and kiss her at one point. Her statement as to why she didn't say anything is really telling of the times, quote, but he was Alfred Hitchcock, the great and famous director, and I was Tippy Hedren, an inexperienced actress who had no clout. She was under contract and trying to work in the industry. It was, it was just 10 years prior that there was basically government-sponsored blackballing happening. And even to this day, it can still happen with problem or problematic actors, less so with directors, it seems. It got weirder during the filming of Marnie, which was shortly after The Birds, and even Diane Baker pointed out how fucking weird it was that Hedren couldn't hang out with the cast and would be brought to meet with Hitchcock in private. It eventually became an, an all-out ranch fest, and Hedren and Hitchcock would only communicate through a third party. There's a movie about this called The Girl, with Sienna Miller and Toby Jones. And, uh... You know, I don't know that it's a testament as to how intense this got or not, but I've also heard about Hitchcock getting real weird and possessive over Kim Novak during the filming of Vertigo. Guy had some real fucking issues. You might think that I picked this particular movie because of these issues, but honestly, I did not. I came up on them as I was reading because I wanted to understand why this movie did not turn out good. I picked it because it's one that I'd heard the name of before, but had never seen. As I'm looking at my physical collection, I see that Sean Connery is in it. I have a an Alfred Hitchcock set, so to speak. I see Sean Connery's name and I'm my interest is piqued. I can't imagine a world with Sean Connery in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, yet here we are. So I watched it, and I'd heard about the Kim Novak thing. If um If memory serves, it was from listening to the episode of Unspooled, a movie podcast with Amy Nichols and Paul Shear, The the Vertigo episode, specifically. And Amy Nichols is a really great movie critic, and Paul Shear is a very funny person who does have a flair for podcast production under the Stitcher banner, or Earwolf banner, I should say. I do not agree with them all the time. Sometimes I disagree in a big way, but I do appreciate them, acknowledge them, and aspire to be like them marnie the movie aspires to be a mystery and a thriller and it's kind of mostly fucking neither there's not enough action to make it a thriller and you know and by action i mean not, not even people dying but theft or danger it's it's very pedestrian and it's not much of a mystery either it it is exactly what you think and The big reveal is some trauma, and there was... uh, The only way that you would know about it is if because, well, it was super obvious, but also you couldn't, because that was just never explained, and usually... Mysteries need that trick of having the mystery be solvable by the audience. And this was not solvable. You know, except that it was completely telegraphed. So it was super obvious, but you just had to connect dots A to B to C without any real evidence, but more forecasting using experience, what would happen? But in watching Evan Hunter, the screenwriter for The Birds, and former ex-screenwriter for Marnie, uh, talk about his drafts, it seemed that he was very adamant that the rape scene should go, and Hitchcock just totally thought that the rape scene was just a-okay. J. Preston Allen, J. Preston Allen, I should say. If I said Preston, I'm sorry, but it's Preston, P-R-E-S-S-O-N. In the same extras featurette for the movie, she says that she was astonished at her lack of sensitivity once she met Evan Hunter and they discussed working for Hitchcock. Allen was not aware of Hunter's previous work on the film, from what I understand. And I believe, because I haven't listened back to it, but I believe that in the Unspooled episode on Vertigo, they talk about how Hitchcock was treating Kim Novak much like how Jimmy Stewart's character was treating Kim Novak's character in the movie, in that he was making her someone else, his ideal girl. And I can't help but think that Hitchcock really lived vicariously through his movies in this fucking weird way. And uh, I, 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 I want to sum this up already, and I didn't want this episode to be about this, but the movie was so bland. And then we get a rape scene and then it turns out that the director was just fucking all about it. It's definitely a twist from the, uh, fat congested sounding man that I used to see on, on Nick at night after the funny shows were finished, you know, but this movie came out in 1964. And, uh, at this time he'd been transferred over to MCA universal and if you if you look at his catalog, you can see that he was he was not as good during this period of time, yeah, I don't know i didn't I didn't see this one coming, and honestly i'm I'm somewhat shocked by it, not in the fact that there's a rape scene because i they exist in movies, but the fact that there is a rape scene in nineteen sixty four and it's laundered by a coerced marriage because censors were very aggressive during this time like you, you don't understand like that it didn't exist it didn't happen and it's laundered by a coerced marriage and a female screenwriter while seemingly also being the the inner desires of the director and it's, it's all captured on celluloid yeah this was a weird one and I, I said in the intro that I was I was using this movie to disguise my ignorance but I think that I only revealed it, highlighted it, even. If I decide to do another Hitchcock movie, it'll be North by Northwest. I I saw that in high school, and I thought it to be quite the banger. I hope nothing fucking awful happened during production that'll throw a wrench in the works, but I'm also finding, little by little, that a lot of people that I may look up to for various reasons are actually garbage for various other reasons. And I have this whole Alfred Hitchcock collection thing to go through at some point. But if you'll indulge me, I'd like to talk briefly about the 2011 post-metal supergroup Palms. To do that, I'd need to start talking about a 1997 post-metal band called ISIS, all caps, not terrorists. ISIS was a New England, New England, I have a weird problem saying that right now New England New England group who really in my personal and probably oh Jesus Christ hitting the fucking microphone, come on man in my my personal and probably inconsequential opinion started to hit their stride with their two thousand two album Oceanic while the concept was dramatic and incestuous, the content was crushing, and transcendent. The strength in the ambiance of that album ended up influencing so much of the musical space that my ears tend to occupy. The follow-up to that album, Panopticon, is one that I really latched onto, however, and it led me straight into the 2006 follow-up, In the Absence of Truth, and 2009's Wavering Radiant. And then they break up. But I started with Isis because, by weight, that's the meatiest part of Palms. To talk about the remaining segment of Palms, I'll need to go back to Sacramento in 1988. This was the formation of Deftones. Their debut album, Adrenaline, was released in 1995. I didn't hear it at the time, but I did end up getting the soundtrack for The Crow: City of Angels, which had the track Teething on it, and... That's probably the first time that I became aware of Deftones that I can like concretely place. 1997's Around the Fur was pretty much the pop-off for them in a, in a very major way. And there was a lot of energy on that album that was interestingly like contrasted in 2000's White Pony, which is where I became enamored with this band. There have been several studio albums since, but we only want to fast forward to Deftones' lead singer, Chino Moreno's brief side project with former ISIS band members Jeff Cackside, Aaron Harris, and Bryant Clifford Meyer, called Palms. Palms is an interesting departure from both ends, and they meet somewhere in the middle. But there's one song that's always stuck with me, and I believe it's the first song on the album, Future Warrior. That one has a music video, link in the show notes, and I've been listening to this song on repeat all day today. It's one of those songs. I, I can just rock it just over and over and over when the mood finds me. And I didn't understand exactly what the lyrics were going to lead me to, if indeed they led me to anything, and this wasn't just a huge coincidence. Which is, I mean, let's be honest, which really is what it is, unless it isn't. But allow me to do a dramatic reading of the lyrics for the first verse in the bridge. Verse 1. I slipped into your sight. I didn't feel anything deep inside, then looked out through clean eyes, but didn't see anything that I liked. Bridge. The closer I am, I notice something's wrong with you. The closer I am, I know there's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. And it feels like this song is about my experience with this movie. I'm sure that's just me projecting, but it, it would be really cool if there was some hidden pattern of the brain that that made that connection today but anyway it's been a it's been a wild ride. Marnie did not like do not recommend do not watch stay safe, wear a mask. vaccination rates aren't quite there yet, so please just wear a mask be nice. black lives matter and I'm out i am. Out uh, as always on Twitter, coolmarkd cool with a c and mark with a k. And uh, I am about to just clown on the actual trailer for Marnie. You thought you were getting through here without a trailer, but there is um there's a four minute trailer that Alfred Hitchcock made, and it is one of the wildest things I've ever come across. So I'm gonna I'm gonna clown on it. And you'll get the audio here and I will do <laughs> a parody riffing and commentary on it because it um, yeah when I discovered this I, I had to include it it is insane so I'm gonna play now and he's on a, a crane just like fucking cranes back in the day were wild Like this dude was getting a camera up. I don't know about that. Well, he's next to the camera up, so I guess he'd ride the crane. Directors do that, right?
1: How do you do?
0: How do I do? Alfred
1: Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my latest motion picture, Marnie.
0: You thought I was making fun of his voice earlier. this
1: theater soon. I was not. Marnie is a very difficult picture to classify. It sucks. It is not psycho, nor do we have a horde of birds flapping about and pecking at people willy-nilly
0: these are all we universal have two movies. very
1: interesting human specimens a man they're, and a woman they're not that interesting one might call Marnie a sex mystery one might call least, you a sex if one pest such words. Uh, but they it should. is more than that perhaps the best way to tell you about the picture is to show you a few scenes.
0: Mind you, this is four minutes long. We're this one is minute Mark in.
1: coming down the stairs of his family home outside Philadelphia. He is a thoughtful man, dark and brooding. He,
0: he looks into in the camera. He looks down the barrel of the hunter. camera.
1: And this is what he is hunting. Marnie.
0: He's not a hunter. Seeing
1: her in her Hardly. mother's modest house, one wonders how...
0: She's also looking down, down the barrel of the camera. They filmed these specifically for this.
1: It was certainly not Marnie's idea. Marnie was going about her own business like any normal girl.
0: Clip from the movie, she's stealing things.
1: Happy, happy, Suddenly into this colorful life comes Mark.
0: This is the whole thunderstorm thing where he's gonna kiss her,
1: I guess. She does seem a rather excitable type. What would account for this strange behavior?
0: Yeah, it's really strange. Has she just
1: realized that she forgot her umbrella?
0: It's it's really very strange.
1: It's the colors. Stop the colors. What colors? Marnie's trouble goes deeper than. The that. whole
0: thing with like red. the branch.
1: And this is she the runs. problem. Here's the kiss, Martin right?
0: And it's like dude, if somebody's in distress, but first, don't kiss must them. Must be done
1: to calm the like
0: girl. Our them.
1: hero applies mouth to mouth resuscitation. It's a
0: kiss. This guy's such a oh god, a pervert. But that
1: may give you the impression sex this pest. picture is all sex and no mystery. Not so at all. Here, for example, Marnie is speaking to—I'm uh, I'm not sure who actually.
0: Listen, that guy never he is matters a man ever from again. Her
1: past. A past Doesn't matter. She seems Doesn't to factor be into it.
0: This is bullshit.
1: Oh dear, they're at it again. Let me assure you. Okay, that
0: was a real kiss, and she's not freaking out.
1: Of investigation.
0: She looks like she this, really likes it.
1: Here is further proof that Marnie is a talking picture.
0: You don't love me. I'm just something you've caught you think i'm some
1: kind of animal you've trapped that's right you are and i've caught something really wild this time haven't i what a fucking weirdo and caught you and by god i'm gonna keep you what a psycho quite enough if you wish to hear more you will have to buy a ticket as for which one of them coming up here
0: and this is where i was like when i'm not sure it's the rape scene this is the rape scene okay he has just disrobed Marnie, obviously not showing any nudity. I don't think
1: that was necessary. Actually, I think I should withhold comment, since I'm not certain I understand this scene.
0: Homie, you're the I one that wanted
1: explanation it. I to your own vivid imagination.
0: You wanted it in the picture. What? What is this coy It would appear shit.
1: that Mark has a single solution for all problems. This is not so. Mark is a complex man, dark and forbidding. I mean, he can also be kind and considerate.
0: Yes, but also and he is
1: also a troubled
0: man. He fucks like that's his thing.
1: Troubled because he cannot seem to unravel the mystery of the girl called Marnie.
0: And then here they're gonna show you the horse fucking getting its leg broken. Like <laughs> Jesus. And they're like, is it a sex story, a mystery, a detective story, a romance, a story of a thief? A love story, it, it says yes and more, and it is, like, failing at all of these. Fails at all of them. Like, what the fuck? Alfred Hitchcock, dude. Who are you? Who are you? What is this? Who is the sex pest that they gave power in Hollywood to? And why would he create this four-minute trailer that that shows you the whole movie just about? I mean, they leave out Diane Baker completely. You know, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But that just that one, I was like, oh, let me throw the trailer in there towards the beginning. Nope. It's a four-minute fucking trailer. It tells you the whole movie. It's going at the end. And I'm going to talk over it because, yeah, it is, homie, that's unusual, okay, that's really unusual, and I have the microphone on a figure eight, so if it sounds bad, fuck, roll with it, roll with it, but it sounded a little too dark, a little too bassy, and cardioid, so, anyway, that's been Marnie, I've been Mark... Mark E. Fresh. Uh, Yeah, that's it. I don't have anything else. You know, somebody once called me a Mark-ass trick. (laughs) Or a trick-ass Mark. I don't remember which, but it was very funny. Uh, Yeah, no, that's it. Cool, Mark D. Cool with a C and Mark with a K on Twitter. Best way to reach me if you have any questions, concerns, comments. Again, I will see you on the next one. At the next one, I will speak to you on the next one. You will hear me uh, when the next episode is released. I'll, I'll, I'll workshop that a little bit.